Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you so much for drawing us together as you have on this wonderful day. Lord, I pray I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that you would speak to our hearts powerfully. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I love Christmas, and I've always enjoyed decorating not only the inside of the house, but the outside too. When my children were small, we loved to drive around the neighborhoods to see the homes decked out in their multicolored twinkling lights. Interestingly, though I thought they were lovely and we enjoyed looking at them as we drove by the displays, I never really connected with the nativity scenes. Most of them were just plastic images of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, surrounded by artificial lambs and donkeys. But all that changed for me the year that I happened to see a living nativity scene at a nearby church. The youth pastor's wife and her newborn baby were there as Mary and the infant Jesus. A protective Joseph, who I think might have been the youth pastor, stood over them and shepherds and real lambs knelt nearby. There were even live donkeys whose warm, earthy odour mingled with the sweet smell of hay. Seeing the Christmas story in the flesh made a huge impact on me. I realised on a deeper level that it wasn't just a story. It was an actual historical event that happened to real people in real time in a real place. And since then... I've never been able to think about Christmas or look at a nativity scene in quite the same way. The faces arrest me. I look at them and I can imagine all the thoughts and feelings that must have washed over them as the events unfolded. I want us to look at those faces together for a few minutes today. I want us to think about the real people who experienced the very real coming of Christ into the world. There was Mary a young woman of around 13 years old at the time, who was pledged to be married to Joseph. The scripture tells us that she was visited by an angel who told her that she was to bear God's son, even though she was still a virgin, that she was to call the boy Jesus and that he would be great and would be called the son of the Most High. He would be the ruler of God's everlasting kingdom. Mary knew what these words meant. She and all the faithful Jewish people of the time treasured the promises in scripture about the Messiah, God's anointed one who would one day come to rule over God's people. They were longing for his appearance and even dared hope they might actually see him come. Perhaps she even remembered how 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah had proclaimed to his people in Isaiah 7 verse 14, that the Lord himself will give them a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. 
Could these words really be meant for her? She was a virgin, not yet married to Joseph, but the thought of being found pregnant before their marriage took place would surely have caused her great fear. What if Joseph thought that she'd committed adultery? It could cost her very life, as punishment for adultery in those days was death by stoning. Even if she escaped that fate, what would the others in her village think? She knew that she would always be the target of their accusations and gossip, as would Joseph and the son she would bear. I can imagine the anxiety she must have felt as she thought about what might lie ahead, and yet she responded to the news of God's plan in faithful obedience, humbly telling the angel, Be it unto me as you have said that it should be. May God's word to me be fulfilled. Mary's yes to God that night changed everything for her and for us. It set her on a path that was as difficult as it was beautiful. So when I look at her in that stable in Bethlehem, I see a face filled with wonder at God's faithfulness to his promises. And then there was Joseph. The Bible doesn't tell us much about Joseph directly. Scholars believe it quite possible that he was much older than Mary, perhaps even a widower. Regardless of his age, however, he was specially chosen to be Mary's husband, the guardian and protector of the very Son of God. And when I look at his face, I see the weight of responsibility he willingly bore. Matthew chapter 1 reveals what happened when Joseph learned of Mary's pregnancy. Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph was described as a just man who was faithful to the law, and though he had a legal right to divorce Mary when he found out she was pregnant, he concluded that he would do so quietly. You see, according to Jewish law, the betrothal relationship was considered a covenant relationship which would have required a divorce to break, just as a marriage would. I love the description here of Joseph considering these things before coming to his decision. 
He was obviously a kind and self-sacrificing man. But then he had an angelic visitor, just as Mary had. And the angel's words to Joseph must have been just as fearful and shocking to him as those to Mary had been to her. Imagine being told that you were to care for the Son of God who was coming to redeem the world and for his mother. But humble, faithful Joseph also said yes to God. He chose to follow God's command and take Mary home as his wife, knowing the shame and humiliation that they would have to endure from the village gossips. Accepting God's will came at a great personal cost to both Joseph and Mary, a cost that was just beginning. As Mary drew towards the end of her pregnancy, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, who ruled over much of the known world of the time, issued a decree commanding that a census be taken of the people living under the control of his empire. This census required that each individual return to their hometown, and as Mary and Joseph were both from the family line of King David, they undertook the arduous journey from Galilee to Bethlehem to register. One can only imagine how busy the small town of Bethlehem must have been with the unprecedented influx of people. And as the young couple entered the town, they were unnoticed and unaided. Just two more weary faces among thousands jostling for a place to stay and food to eat. And so it happened that Christ, the King of glory, was born in a stable set aside for animals and laid in a humble feeding trough as a bed. But his birth did not slip by totally unnoticed. Some lowly shepherds from nearby fields were drawn to the manger that night, and that was a very unusual thing. Shepherds, though vital in their function, were not highly regarded in the society of that time. They were uneducated, they were dirty, they smelled, they were among the invisibles of their day. I see so many things reflected in their various faces. Some must have felt shy with their eyes somewhat downcast, as if they knew they had no real right to be there, except that an angel had told them to come. Who were they to even be noticed by an angel, much less spoken to? And yet, who were they to ignore the message of good news for all people? that today in the town of David, a saviour, the Messiah, the Lord, had been born. Others may have reflected a bit of fear, not daring to believe the words were true until they saw the child for themselves, and then they knew. You see, these weren't just any shepherds. These shepherds who worked in the fields surrounding Bethlehem were caring for the very flocks that provided lambs for sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. How fitting they would be among the first to know that the eternal Lamb of God had been born and see him for themselves. There was, of course, one more face in that holy scene that night, 
the face of the Christ child himself. A normal infant boy to all appearances, sometimes crying, sometimes sleeping, wriggling as much as he could in the swaddling clothes. But in his face, we see the glory of God, according to the Apostle Paul, who revealed in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, that the light of the knowledge of God's glory is displayed in the face of Christ. He is the word made flesh, according to John chapter 1. And the prophet Isaiah calls him Emmanuel, God with us. And even in that darkened stable, those with eyes of faith recognized him for who he is. In the days and months to come, other faces would enter the Christmas story, and I don't want us to miss what can be seen in them. It seems that Mary and Joseph stayed in Bethlehem for some time after Christ's birth, for Matthew's Gospel tells us that much later, some interesting seekers also found him there. In chapter 2, Matthew records that during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Scholars believe that these men may have been studying the prophecies of Daniel about the one who would be born King of Israel when they noticed an unusual star in the sky. Believing it to be an omen, they began to follow it, and they travelled 800 miles or more, hoping to find the king they'd been reading about. They logically stopped in Jerusalem to ask his whereabouts. You can imagine the consternation that this caused for a certain ruler there. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I love this part of the story about the Magi or wise men. I love that they diligently searched what they had of God's word and that they were willing to leave everything behind to follow where that truth led.
They first stopped in Jerusalem, expecting that a king would be born there. But after speaking to Herod and the religious leaders, they were told to look in Bethlehem because the prophet Micah had said that a ruler who would shepherd God's people would come from there. So they turned south and the star went ahead of them until it came to a stop directly over the house now in which the child Jesus could be found. I love that they immediately recognize God in the face of Christ. Can you imagine the joy and reverence on their faces as they bowed down to worship him? But I think there was some sorrow there as well, because the gifts they presented showed that they understood not only who he was, but what he had come to do. They gave him gold. Gold has always been associated with kings and royalty because it is so precious and valuable. And in scripture, it's also a symbol of divinity as well. They knew that he was God in the flesh, the king of kings. They gave him frankincense, a particularly fragrant tree resin that had always been associated with sacrifice. It was collected and then burned as a sweet-smelling offering to God, one that was totally consumed by fire, nothing remaining. In this, they recognized that Jesus himself would be a fragrant offering to God, holding nothing back in his sacrifice to the Lord. He would willingly give everything to purchase our salvation. And they gave him myrrh, another fragrant tree resin, but one that was associated with bitterness, suffering and affliction. In fact, it was used in the embalming of dead bodies. With that gift, the wise men recognized that the sweet child before them would grow to suffer greatly as a man and would pay the ultimate price when he gave his life on the cross for all who would believe in him. Then Matthew tells us that having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Obeying God rather than man, they proved themselves to be wise men indeed. We need to talk, though, just for a moment about the other face we see in this narrative, the brooding, jealous face of Herod the Great, the wicked political ruler whose efforts to destroy the Christ child caused such pain and sorrow. Herod was not his name. It was the title given to the ruling dynasty in Judea. And many different Herods would govern over the years. This particular Herod in Matthew's account, however, was identified as the greatest of all of them. Though not a Jew himself, Herod the Great had been appointed as king of the Jews by the Romans, so he was not accepted by the Jewish people. Despite his attempt to gain favor with them by greatly enlarging and updating the temple in Jerusalem to a size and magnificence it had never had before, not even under Solomon. So, when he heard that a king of the Jews had been born, his heart was filled with rage at this unexpected threat to his title and his power. 
Herod had always feared political rivals and had never hesitated in eliminating them. He had his wife's brother, who happened to also be the high priest, drowned in the swimming pool in his palace. He sentenced to death 46 members of the ruling council of Jerusalem and had a mother-in-law, one of his wives and two of his own sons murdered. It's hardly surprising then that the wise men's questions awakened all his self-protective instincts. He called the Magi to him secretly to find out the exact time the star had appeared. He then sent them on their way to Bethlehem with instructions to return to Jerusalem and give him the exact location of the newborn king so that he could worship him also. But it didn't quite work out that way. The Magi did not return and Herod's plans were thwarted. Matthew tells us in verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. When it became apparent that the Magi had ignored his directive, Herod ordered what has come to be known as the Massacre of the Innocents. Not knowing exactly how old Jesus was, but certain the wise men had said they'd first seen the star less than two years before their visit, Herod took no chances and had all male children under two in and around Bethlehem killed. In doing this, he unwittingly fulfilled a prophecy from Jeremiah in which the mothers in Israel were portrayed as Rachel, weeping for her lost children. Originally, the prophecy spoke about the tears that the mothers had shed when their children had been taken off into exile in the days of Jeremiah. But here, Matthew links it to the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem, the very place where Rachel herself had been buried centuries before. In this dreadful act, Herod tried to rid the world of the Messiah, but Matthew tells us that God had already intervened to protect Jesus, saving his son from Herod's murderous wrath to fulfill his purpose of securing our salvation. Matthew records that as soon as the wise men left Joseph and Mary, and before Herod realized that he'd been deceived himself, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. 
God's plan proceeded, but Herod's would not be the last rage-filled face that would try to thwart it. There would be others in the future. You might wonder why I would even bring such a horrific event into the Christmas story. It seems so jarring, so opposite to how we started the lesson, doesn't it? I did it because it's also part of the flesh and blood reality we talked about at the beginning. These events were real and have real consequences. Christ is the ultimate expression of God's peace and goodwill to men, just as the angels announced. He is our Savior, the one sent to rescue and redeem us from sin's reality. But he comes as a gift a gift that must be received. We can accept him and worship him, or we can reject him and refuse his love. John put it this way in his gospel, saying, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The choice is ours to make, the consequences ours to live with. Well, faces reveal a lot, don't they? I wonder, what have the faces of Christmas revealed to you? Can you see yourself among them? I hope so. I hope that you return to that nativity scene often in the remaining days of the season. I hope that you gaze on the faces of those who were there that night and carry their wonder and joy into your own space, your own time. I hope that you worship the Christ who came to rescue you as did the wise men. And most of all, I hope you gaze on the face of the Christ child himself, God in the flesh, fulfilling the promise of a redeemer first made in the Garden of Eden, renewed in the voices of the prophets, announced by John the Baptist, and delivered for us all by a young virgin in a hidden stable in a little town called Bethlehem. He is truly the Christ, our Emmanuel, God with us, our Redeemer, our Saviour. May the light of his face shine on you all this Christmas. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.